Um, I'm George Hyatt. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ Central. Welcome. Uh, I want to uh, remind you that next week also starts not just for children's stuff, but uh, for adult Sunday school as well. We have a lot going on, a lot uh, happening. We're going to do a what called a foundations uh, Sunday school, and so we're going to be going through some really basic stuff like can you trust your Bible. Um, it, um, things like who's Jesus and what was his life all about, things like that. I think it can be really helpful for our congr- for our congregation. Uh, uh, I I think that we this is one place in kind of the basics, the foundations of the faith that Christ Central. Well, as a community, we're kind of weak on, so we could really use the uh, the kind of basics, the ABCDs of Christianity. Sometimes. Um, sorry about the heat. Uh, one air conditioner works, but the big main one doesn't. So if you're getting a little concert feel, um, you know then I'm sorry about that, but that's kind of normal for this building. Uh, I'd jack up the fan a little bit more, but I'm not afra- I'm afraid the roof may come off. Uh, uh, but uh, you, you can do the old-fashioned fanning. I like that back. That corner must be hotter than everywhere else because uh, no one else is ever doing it. Sorry about that, y'all. Um, um, now, you know as well as I do that Terrence Brown is one heck of a worship leader. Can I get amen on there somewhere? Right, amen. Thank you very much. Um, but you don't know why and what proves it. You may think it's actually his um, his ability to sing that he has this really tremendous and powerful voice. That's not it. You may think that he has um, this kind of uh, musical repertoire that he can play the um, the uh, uh, the the tuba and the what's that thing the cello and uh, uh, and his voice and you think that's be it but that's not it either you may think it's actually because he with uh, the rest of the team the rest of the music team uh, can put together all these creative and wonderful things but that's not it either the real reason the real signpost for why uh, Terrence is such a good worship leader is because of his emails if you ever see any of his emails if you get an email from from Terrence Brown, you will be sure to see many exclamation points. He is an exclamation point loving dude. And what does that tell you about him? It tells you that he's kind of amped up, right? A worship leader, right? He's loving life. He loves the life in Christ. And you could be saying, we're meeting at eight. But no, we're meeting at eight. (laughs) I'm glad he's not here because I'm kind of dogging him on this. But... It's actually these exclamation points that are so important to who he is and to what Paul is doing here. He's got these points he wants to make, and he wants to make them with exclamation. Um, uh, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand, verse 11. It's the end of this pastoral letter. It's Pastor Paul saying, look, I got to talk to y'all. I need you to know that I'm writing you. I need you to know what's at the end. I'm going to wrap this thing up. I'm going to give you my last points and I'm going to give it with exclamations. Now, some of you may not be exclamation point lovers. Some of you may be italicizer emphasizers. And some of you may love the bold, like in those history books of old where you got your glossary words, where you didn't really have to read, just got your glossary word for the test. Uh, Some of you like that. Some of you, most annoyingly, I mean, emphasizing wise, uh, love the 72 font double underline with a different color with emoticons. I think that's how you say it. I could, I've only read it. I don't actually know how to say it, but emoticons, those little faces and things like that, you know? And now you can like go buy more online that's for some reason. Uh, but if you're an ancient Near Eastern writer, you don't have a control I key. You don't have uh, a way to kind of make it uh, more pronounced. And what, so what Paul does is wasting precious paper of the day. 
wasting valuable resources, writes with large letters something to us. Uh, he, he wants us to get what he's been talking about. He's get this grace that he's been talking about the entire time. You might call it grace writ large, 72 font grace for us that he's bringing. He's saying, wait a second here. I'm going to write this with my own hand. In that day, the natural thing to do was to have a scribe, if you will, someone who was your administrator who would write stuff down for you. And he wouldn't do that. He, he, he kind of changed that way of doing it this time so that he could say it with his own hands to, to kind of come across a little bit closer to his people. This happened to one, to once for us with Pastor Howard and me when we were in seminary. And our seminary president uh, was going to about, we didn't know it then. I wish we would have. I would have found a reason not to be in chapel that day. We didn't know it then, but it was going to give us the most convicting and heartfelt and deal with us pastorally over the kitchen table kind of stuff that he'd ever done to us. And what he did beforehand is he moved the pulpit from up here, where it was kind of a stage like this, not so high, and he moved it right down there in the middle. He changed the normal way of doing things so that we could understand. And we got it. We got it with authority and intimacy. We got it. We got the gospel in it, but we got it. It was close to us and tied to us, connected to us. It was authority and intimacy that was driving what he was doing and the changing of, uh, and the changing of the normal ways he's doing things. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's writing with a big hand, with a big, with his own hand, writing as big as possible so that we could get it, that we would understand this grace rich writ large but he's doing it for another reason as well and that's because we're not that smart and we're not that good you see flannery o'connor who's one of my favorite writers ever uh says this about writing and if you've ever read a flannery o'connor short story or a novel you'll understand what how, how this works uh to the heart of hearing you shout For the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. She writes almost parable-like things. And she says, we need to write these kind of startling figures before us or shout aloud to, to people because we don't see very well. We don't hear very well. We miss it. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul has written the same dadgum thing 47 times in this book. We're on, on Galatians 6. And if you've been here all summer, you're like, goodness gracious, can you think of another way to say the same thing? He is. He's doing it over and over again. And it's because we have no spiritual memories. We are, uh, uh, we're not good. We're not good on the test. We can't remember the data. His repetition is that double underscore 72 font in red emoticon, uh, emoticon thing for us so that we would remember. People used to get ticked off at Martin Luther because he would talk about grace again and again. And he writes again and again because I greatly fear that after we have laid our head to rest, it will soon be forgotten and we will again disappear and it will again disappear. Luther. Pastor Paul here, Flannery O'Connor, they're making it a just-in-case-you-missed-it big picture for us so that we can see. It's an exclamation point, a point that exclaims to us what's going on. And here are the two points for us today. They're as simple as, as they can be, and that is this. Remember the anti-gospel, how the anti-gospel life works. Remember how the anti-gospel life works. And remember how the authentic gospel life works. Just two things as he's putting points on the end of his great letter, one of the most majestic and personal and pastoral letters that he has. His whole heart and mind and soul are 
don't forget how the anti-gospel works. And don't forget how the authentic gospel works. You know what he's doing. We've talked about this enough uh, so that you would know. But these Judaizers have come in and said that you need to keep the law in order to be in right relationship with God and his people. You have to be Jewish before Christian, if you will. You have to be circumcised before you can be a Christian. And he says, no, that's not true. That's not only not true. That is an anti-gospel. It's not. It's fake. It's a faux gospel. It's not a gospel at all. Because, and you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Davidson College with my couch. My couch was leather. It was a great couch for college because things could get spilt on it. You could wipe it off very easily. The problem with it is it doesn't wasn't really good for human sitting. And it got curious one day that this kind of plastique kind of feel to the uh, to it to it. We looked and what was it? It was on the on the piece of paper in there or in the um, uh, on the tag. Genuine naga hide. Now I don't know if you've ever seen a naga. I have never seen a naga. You can Wikipedia naga and it won't have four legs. Naga hide is fake. It's pleather. It's faux leather. Faux leather. It's not true. It is not the real thing. And it don't sleep like leather. The temperature is never right. It's not good for your hind parts. It is a faux gospel, a naga gospel, a naga hide gospel that he says, remember how the naga hide gospel works. And he's going to take us through in the next couple of verses and say, here's what it's about. Remember what this is like. Because when you start running into these things again, when you start feeling these things again, when you start seeing that you're actually walking in that Nagahide, you're trying to sit down on the Nagahide gospel, you will know it doesn't work again. You notice here that Paul is, in these next couple of verses, is going to be talking about motives and methods of the anti-gospel life, of the Nagahide gospel life. It's going to hurt you, he's basically saying, and it's going to injure others. It's a destructive influence on your soul. It will lie to you and tell you things and promise things that it cannot. What are the motives that you see here? It's in the next verses that you see. uh, It says, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. That's in verse 12 you see there. This whole self-saving world and life view, this whole... uh, uh, this whole, I'm going to get myself, posture myself and, and uh, be productive enough myself before God. All of it is this is motivated from somewhere. And sure, it's sin and rebellion as we hear. But there's something else that Paul points us to as he's uh, ending this letter, this exclamation point. He, sends, he says, why are you doing all this time and effort? And that is to be outwardly impressive. It's status, if you will, one of the motivations. It's some kind of spiritual status because religious people look good to religious people. They posture and we posture and make good impressions. And and some of you know this better than others if you've hung out at the church very much which uh, is basically who he's talking to here, is is depending on circles you run in, there are people to name drop that get you in right relationship with that pe- that set of people. There are music that you should listen to. If you're in the charismatic cramp- camp, it may be Wigglesworth or Wimber. If you're in some circles of the left-leaning evangelicals, it's Campolo or, um, or Wallace. On the religious right, it would be Hagee and Falwell and Kennedy. If you're emergent folks, it's going to be McLaren and Miller. If it's for reformed folks like us, it's going to be Calvin and Luther. You better Drop your Calvin and Luther when you need to so you can get some street cred in the community. 
For PCA types, it may be Francis Schaeffer or Howard... Br- oh, wait, no. It, it, it would be... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it, in our community, it's good to connect with people. And I'm serious about pa- Pastor Brown. People connect, want to be connected and associated with pa- Howard Brown. Nobody on this list is doing anything wrong. It's the way we do it. You want to be connected with the popular or the good or the right or the great church planters or whatever it is. And we do this kind of thing where we uh, we want to make a good impression by our either our associations or some type of pursuit of status that we have. And so it gets us to do all sorts of things. If it's in the charismatic camp, maybe it's amped up, prophetic, got to speak in tongues every week, worship. It's got to, if it's in, um, uh, if it's in, in some of these other camps, it may be kind of understanding political and social theory that gets us in right relationships with God. It may be the fact that we are, uh, uh, that we, we understand and, and, uh, and, and know who the great artist is in the community or in history. And for Christ Central, it may be which conference you've been to. You've been to Labrie? You've been to Sonship? You've been to uh, the Barnabas Center or uh, En Gedi? Something that gives us kind of a mark that, that circumcises us in some way that actually is the thing that makes us right before God, not, not the thing that's a result of what makes us right before God. All these things, as you know, I would say, and none of them are wrong. None of these are bad at all. It, but it doesn't matter if it's the Sonship conference or the Take Back America conference or the New Prophetic Word conference. It just doesn't matter if that's the thing that brings you status in a community. If that's the thing that gets you on the inner circle, that's the thing that becomes our circumcision. Anything we do to impress, to bring status, to be outward signs of things. And the other thing that happens in this is not just status. The other motive that pursues in a, that, that, that the Naga Gospel gives us is safety. It's an interesting kind of safety. It's a not permanent safety. But read with me in the rest of that verse. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now these guys seem very noble, these Judaizers, because they're going to do something significant, like literally cut off their foreskins in order to be right before God. And that seems like something that is in the realm of dangerous, not safety, right? Right? <laughs> okay. okay, thank you. Uh, um, uh, but... It, but but what he's saying is, no, 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 this is actually an act of safety keeping. It's actually a social status keeping. It's an actual uh, placing yourself in a right relationship with other people. He's saying that on some base level that this is actually cowardice because they don't want to have to rely on Jesus alone. They don't want to have to rely on Jesus uh, as people will persecute them for, for believing such a radical thing, that Jesus forgives your sins not in, not in response to your good behavior, but in response to his good love and his good care for you. Bishop Tom Wright says, they are trying to save their own skins by cutting off other people's foreskins. That makes sense. They are trying to uh, make themselves feel better. And you get this. It's, a, it's kind of a level of assimilation that makes you safe. If you were an outsider uh, uh, from, uh, from the South, if you were, let's just say you're an Arab Muslim and you're moving to Charlotte, the pressure that you would feel, the pressure you would feel to change your habits, the way you think, the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you, uh, 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 the way you eat, um, uh, is going to be significant. Uh, it's a safety if you move in those directions. It's, it's safety. You will be let in at least to some degree. There's a security payoff for things like that. You will, uh, chances are you're going to find a better job the more you assimilate. Maybe in the good bank or live in a good neighborhood or go to a good school, quote unquote. And if you're really good, they may let you all the way into the parties. All the way in. And now, my guess is not all the way into the country club, but you may get in to some degree. 
And what happens is that brings some level of safety. But ultimately, you know this, especially if you've lived, if you've ever lived as part of a subdominant culture, which that's a lot of you in this room. Uh, and if you've lived as part of a subdominant culture, you know there is a glass ceiling. It, you can't assimilate enough. It doesn't work. It's a lie. You can't circumcise yourself enough to get in with the group. It don't work. You can't, uh, you can't golf shirt polo it enough. That's no offense. Some of you trying to golf shirt, some of you trying to out golf shirt. I'm not trying to name any one bad thing. We're all doing, if you're feeling on the outside, you cannot assimilate enough to be in because the whole system's broke. The whole system is broke because it's not, you're not offered in, and this is socially, socially now, you're not actually allowed in. Well, the same thing goes with this kind of system of, of circumcision. If you do the right, uh, method, Jewish methodology of the time, then you can be in. That's a lie. It doesn't work like that. It's a lie of the gospel. It's a social theory lie, but it's also a lie of the gospel. Because the gospel says you can come in as the train wreck you are. And as the beautifully dignified individual that you are. Paul is telling us that religious legalism, this self-saving by keeping all the right religious company or doing all the right spiritualized moral behavior is bunk. And it comes from cowardice, ultimately. We're either scared of what people will think of us or we're scared that the gospel really isn't true, that we're saved by His grace and His grace alone. But either way, it comes from a place of fear. And sometimes uh, I understand why those fears are, but that is the reality of where we are. Believing this Nagahide gospel puts us on a treadmill of performance that you can never, ever get off. You can never peel the onion back enough. There's always something else there. The Nagahide gospel feels like it will help the motives of security and status, but it's a lie and it won't let you do it. You'll only live in more fear and you'll only live feeling like you're further and further out on the status as a part of the status of whatever group it is. Another pastor, Presbyterian pastor, Eugene Peterson says, We can't save ourselves by pulling on our bootstraps, even when the bootstraps are made of the finest religious leather. It just doesn't work that way. But Paul talks and exposes about this Nagahide gospel, not just the... Uh, the the motives, but also the methods of what this uh, fake gospel, this anti-gospel is. And he does it in verse 13. Look with me. Not even those who are circumcised, who are uh, circumcised, obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. Basically what he's doing here is he's talking about the method that is, first of all, foremost, hypocrisy. He's saying, look guys, even the ones who want who are telling you to do all these kind of religious tricks, they ultimately aren't doing it themselves. They they can't hold to the very law that they purport. It breeds hypocrisy in us. And you guys know this. You've felt it. You've experienced it. You've probably experienced it in yourselves. But it's not just hypocrisy. It's kind of got a, a dastardly second part of it, a, a diabolical second half of the coin, which is about control or power or something like that. As you keep reading this verse, uh, that they may boast about your flesh. They're going to get you to do these things. Juggle this way in order a boast about you. 
And it's really kind of sick when you think about it. What happens is this kind of control and power comes in and it's, and, and, uh, and the, what, what people in this system are doing and even we do when we're in it is, is we, we, uh, we, we need converts to affirm the truth of our, we need converts to, 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 um, uh, to, to bolster the whole legal system that we have. It's kind of a bullying thing that goes on. It's, it's hypocrisy and control. And so, uh, in the most deceitful systems that you know of, it's people talking about, in the most clear hypocritical ones, is, you know, you need to live a sacrificial life. And now you need to give me more money. You know, those are the easy ones, right? Yeah, you you know, uh, you, you, um, uh, you need to, to live uh, serving others when in fact uh, you're hoarding uh, people uh, and power and prestige. And you know how twisted it can be. But it's because it's all based on this kind of performance. It's the, the passion of the Naga Hyde gospel is for you to keep going. If you act right, you are right. And then the system is right. And then I'm right. And then I can put you in my trophy case. And it's okay, you build your trophy case too and get your people with their good works and their good things to be this gold and this silver uh, the, uh, um, uh, cups and things that are just ultimately fool's gold that doesn't work, but it have these great elaborate and beautiful trophy cases of your good works. Paul is telling us, don't forget the motives and the methods of the Nagahide gospel. And those are easy targets. But what about us? Where do we forget about how it works in our midst? Either we're too smart or too cynical be, to be hoodwinked by some of the uh, easy, ones to, uh, uh, easy ones to see where people are uh, talking about sacrificial living and just asking for more and more money all the time. But how do we apply this to us? What in your life makes you look at someone else and say, not just... They're not, they're not, what, what in your life and somebody else's life makes you look at them and say, they're not as committed as a Christian as they should be. Maybe in more, they're not as committed of a Christian as I am. What are those kind of things? Is it for us, how much time do you spend in the soup kitchen? I don't know. Is it for us... Driving the right car or not shopping at Walmart? Is it for us how green we are or do we vote in a certain certain manner? How, how about the questions of whether or not you're involved in counseling or in a community group? You know, I think all of those things are really good. All of that stuff is really good. Just like the names of everybody I talked about before was really good. But when it becomes something that sets you apart, makes you better. What about how we raise our children? One of the great ways to know this, as I think about it in my own heart, which is a pretty hard place to be sometimes, is that we create these rules. And you know when you have a rule when you say, I would never do that. And that is not biblical. (laughs) I would never do that. That's why I want to encourage us to work in, to, to uncover where we have an anti-gospel, a naga-gospel belief that we're holding on to. That's where I want us to kind of lean into and let Jesus help us there. Now, it is very dangerous to do what I just did, to talk about all the naga gospel stuff. Because, for two reasons. One, it's depressing. 
because they're all around us and we see it. But two, because, um, because we can so easily see where it is for other people. It's just, you're just much easier, much more apt to figure out where you're messed up than when I'm messed up. And so what Paul does for us is that he gives us that second exclamation point or set of exclamation points. And he says, okay, yes, I want you to understand how the Nagahide gospel works, how the anti-gospel works, but I really want you to understand how the gospel works. And so he comes to the very next verse, just right after it flows uh, perfectly through, and it says, here's how the gospel works. He says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. To the world. That's in verse 14. The cross becomes the central reality of what the gospel, the authentic gospel life is about. And you can hear it more if we had a little bit better translation. I love the NIV. I love the NAS. I love the ESV. I love lots of translations. But the King James gets this one right. The King James says, not may I never boast, which is kind of 20th century PC, kind of, uh, you know, defanged sounding. The, the King James version says, God forbid that I ever boast. That's kind of stronger, right? That gives that kind of emphasis of what's going on. And, uh, and so may it never be, almost like in an oath ma- manner, like an exclamation point, if you will. God forbid that I ever boast in anything but the cross. And so what Paul is doing is saying, you want to know how the gospel life is, what I've been talking about all, all the time? We need to center it on the cross, center it on Jesus' work. Pastor Paul is saying that there is one manner, one method, one motive for the Christian life, and it's Jesus' work on the cross. It's the gospel itself and uh, 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 seen through the seen through Jesus' cross. It's the fuel and the form and the fire of the gospel life. Now, the term the cross is, uh, is a term that means the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Just so you know, it's not just about the one event. It's the, the whole life of Christ in there. His kind of, uh, his kind of, um, a redemptive plan, his redemptive, redemptive work. But it's really important that we keep at the cross because it is, to pardon the pun, the crux of what he's talking about here. It is the cross that he's going for. And it is a bizarre first statement. I don't know if you guys, if we can get this kind of straight with words like crux that mean the center of things. But uh, Paul just said, I boast in nothing. God forbid that I boast in anything but the electric chair. God forbid that I boast in anything except for the hangman's noose of my Savior. God forbid that I boast in anything besides the needle of my king. You see how upside down that is? If you fit in the boast, you want to boast on something. You know, I just scored a touchdown. I won. The crucifixion is loss in most people's eyes. Then and now. And he says, that's what I boast in. This kind of victory, this kind of upside down kingdom, this kind of gospel, authentic gospel life flips it on itself. This whole system of performance, this whole system of status and everything gets flipped again on itself and says, no, it's not about your performance. It's not about victory as you see it. Your victory is bought by a seeming defeat and a resurrection that follows. Your victory was bought by one who suffered for you, who didn't just win for you. He suffered and died for you. Derek Thomas says that this is, makes no sense at all. Still less, we'll be boasting about it. 
Remember Flannery O'Connor's large pictures again? Distorted. That They're supposed to be big and distorted so that we can see what's true. She says before that that, that it's because we're, that, we're that hard of hearing, because that we're, uh, we don't see, that we need to be shocked into seeing things. And that's why Paul puts the cross right at the center of things, that it would shock us back in to what the gospel is really all about again. Paul is saying never, 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 never forget the cross exclamation point. And now it might seem weird that there seem like that that's just kind of an idea, but it means everything. Do you need clarity about how you are loved? Paul's saying, peer at the vision of the cross of Jesus. It wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was his own love for you. You doubt the power of God to keep you in your circumstances? Look at the resurrection. Look at that empty tomb. The same power that raised him from the dead abides in you if you are in Christ. Another kind of doubting, do you doubt in arrogance that your sin is not that bad? And Paul says, look at the cross again. We put him there. It's our sin that needed the justice. That blood flows for us. People called Flannery O'Connor the writer of the grotesque. There was violence in her stories. And there was truth and beauty in them as well. That's what Paul's doing here. He's shouting to us with this distorted figure of Jesus and saying, this is where you will see love. This is where you will see power. This is where you'll be free to repent of your sin because you'll know it's been taken care of. It is the cross that is the center of things and of all reality. And it's a cross, as you keep reading, has three crucifixions in it, if you will. If you read in that 14, it's the cross of Jesus, and then it's us to the world, um, uh, crucified to us, and then us to the world. And you see these kind of quick, uh, quickly, you'll see these crucifixions uh, one after another. I want to be 100% clear about this first one, though. That Jesus is crucified for us. We talk sometimes in spiritualities, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is just simply as possible as elementary as possible, is that Jesus, who was God incarnate, died on a cross for our sins. As simply as I can say it. The actual cross actually nailed, blood actually flowed, blood and water actually flow from his sides, actually makes payment, makes restitution, writes us before God the Father. It is him who does that. It is his work there that makes us makes us uh, have access to who God is. It is not our circumcision or any of that Nagas hide gospel stuff that we've talked to me. He says, come to me. I am your crucified king. I am the savior of sinners. And I will die on a sinner's cross to make you right. But there's a crucifixion to the world that happens there too. Though... Uh, through which the world has been crucified to me also. You see that in the next part of the verse 14. What it's saying is that the world no longer is your treasure. It's not the source of my life and my happiness and my status and my motivations. Christ is. He replaces that, a substitute uh, for that need of security. He replaces my need for status by calling me a child of God. He replaces my need for authority and strength by making me a prince, the son, of the, the son of the king and the brother to the prince. He restores me. He, he connects me. He replaces my desire for control by, uh, by freeing me up to admit that I'm out of control. But he crucifies us to the world too. We're not the same anymore. 
Those who have had a new heart, who've made a new heart, the scripture gives these great images of having stone and then fleshy hearts, or dead in sin and now alive in Christ. There's something that happens here that is a promise to us. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it, y'all. I know sometimes you feel just as dead in sin as you were before. I know that, uh, that uh, sometimes sin feels like it's got do not resuscitate on your heart and you can't come back again. But it is not true. You have been made new. You've been changed and you've been crucified to the world. Now we are in one sense dead men walking. Alive in Christ, nothing can actually hurt us anymore ultimately. You've been made with new desires that you can't keep holding on to the sin patterns forever. You will actually release them at least before the new heavens and at the point of the new heavens and the new earth. That ultimately it cannot keep you because you've been made to have a new heart. It's an incredibly freeing thing. So that, so that in one sense, some of these things are bumps in the road. There may be huge bumps with catastrophic effects on our lives and families. They may make us lose our jobs. They may make us lose our families. But ultimately, our hearts have been shaped in a way that long for Him and find peace in Him alone. We've been crucified to the world. It's hard to believe sometimes. And that's why He sets the image again in the new creations. He says this, Neither circumcision nor circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Exclamation point again. Maybe a 15 point exclamation point this time. What matters is that you are now a new creation. Now rhetorically speaking, this seems kind of odd because he has spent six or five and a half chapters debunking the fact that you need to have a circumcision to be right before God. And now he says neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What? What are you doing? And that's because he's saying, if it fits into the system, if it fits into the, fits into the system, that, that that's how you're right before God, then it means nothing. You're actually now free to be circumcised or not circumcised. You're actually free to, um, to read all sorts of great authors that I'd mentioned before, experience uh, worship in really amped up and w- wonderful ways without this kind of, like, I have to do it to be made right before people. I don't need to get in there with the system or get in with somebody else because I've been made new. I am, I am a new person. You are a new person if you fall, if you, uh, have, have yielded to Jesus in these things. It's rhetorically silly, but it means everything. Christian, it's just the kind of final death blow that says that Christianity is not about what you do or do not do. It's not about how careful of a servant you are or how worshipful you are. What matters is that you are made new, your dead hearts being made alive, and that your Naga, Naga gospel love and self can be freed. To love the authentic gospel again. The term in theological terms, kind of old theological term, is regeneration. That we are live anew. That we are born again, to use an old, uh, uh, old term that has all sorts of baggage with it. It's still a great term. Born again. Jesus says, of talking about this being born again, He says, you guys know that you're not born again no one, he says, no man is born by his own will, but by the will of, at least in that day, of his father. You're not, you don't choose to be born. And it's, again, one more death nail that says, this whole gospel life, it's not about you and what you muster to be made right before God. It is about him who has loved and cared for us. It has, become, it has come out of a father's will to, to, to throw affection on his children. Listen, you guys, selfishness and greed are addictions. We know 
we, we know each other well enough as a community to know that they're significant ones. They ultimately don't have us if we're new creations. Christianity stands alone in the world of religions that says it's not your goodness, it's not your badness, it's not your obedience, it's not your disobedience, it's not your uh, ability to to morally uh, become righteous on your own or your lack of ability to do that. It's not your flesh being cut off, but it's about His flesh being cut up for us. Jesus becomes this new rule, the new measure for us. We couldn't do it on our own. His cross, His death, His life, His resurrection, and not our good works, our good life, our self-saving, nor our bad life or our terrible ways or our, um, our, uh, our, our self-loathing either. It is new and it makes us new again. And this becomes the new rule, the new law that's talked about in verse 16. Throw yourself on Jesus for forgiveness, for status and security, for meaning and hope. Peace and mercy to all of you who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. There is this new rule that comes comes before us, and it's Jesus himself. It's this collapsing on Jesus. It's this rule that says, I am not... Uh, My identity is not caught up in my performance, but my identity is my being caught up in who Christ is. That we are in Christ, dead in Him and now alive, dead to Him and now alive in Him. It becomes our only law, despairing in ourselves, but collapsing on Christ. Here are the exclamation points, my friends. And the only one that really matters is this new rule. That Jesus is our life. He is our status. He is our security. He is our hope. And Galatians underscores 72 font writ large over all of our heads. If you could turn around his paper he wrote, it would be, you could all see it as it was being read and as big as he could write in the letters of his day that says, Christ is your Savior. He is the one that makes you right before his and now our Father. Grace is and mercy, peace, and loving kindness to you. Let us pray. Jesus, we know that uh, we are forgetful people, that we lose it over and over again, that we, um, that we are... Um, run quickly back into the Nagahide gospel, that we run quickly back into uh, a world that we run towards performance or, or status. And Lord, we thank you that you break down, that you have sent Pastor Paul to break down, uh, break down our visions of that, that we, uh, that our belief in that, and that you've sent him to write this letter to us and write in his own hands and big distorted letters that we have a savior who is you that you love us and you care for us and it's not our good works or our bad works that can keep us from you but that we can come to you we can come to you collapsing on you and you alone for favor give us hope and trust in that we ask in your name amen